Thank you, Stuart. Um, tough gig. Tough gig this morning. <laughs> Done well. Um, okay, actually, I wonder if I could ask Craig and some of the elders. We do have a song that we are going to sing at the end with the band. Um, we do have some sheet music, so if some of the elders are here. If we could just hand that out, and if you could share it, just uh, one between two, that would be great. And if one of you could make sure you go upstairs and don't neglect the people uh, sitting up at the top there. Um, if you've got a Bible, all we need is a Bible. So if you've got a Bible, open it to page 1174. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 11 to 22. It's on page 1174 of the church Bibles as you came in through the door. We've been, uh, we've been looking through the book of Ephesians in the evening service, uh, and I gather that uh, some of you probably won't have been there. Uh, so if you want to catch up, if you want to uh, keep on track with this series, you can listen to it online. But we're just kind of picking up where we've been going in the uh, evening service. And I wonder just if I was to ask you a very simple question this morning, how would you answer? If I was to ask you, what is the church. What would you say if you were, if you were to describe what this is, what, what's happening here, what this gathering is, what would you say this is? You see, one of my biggest fears for what we see today in modern day Christianity is our tendency to, to downplay or to undervalue the worth of the local church. And I wonder if, if the reason for that is is that we might have done something to Christianity that the early church fathers would have found unthinkable. We've tamed it. We've tamed it to a, a safe, comfortable, middle-class religion that is there to serve my needs. And therefore, what the church becomes, if that's your kind of way of thinking, the church becomes simply my weekly fix of teaching. It's about what I can get. It's about what I can learn. And maybe we're starting to lose sight of just how amazing this is. Now, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that when you've got glitches and stuff happening, gremlins all over the place. I don't know if you've ever read um, C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a book of a kind of senior devil. He's writing to a junior devil, and they're talking about how to uh, tempt Christians. And, and one of the ways that this senior devil, Screwtape, tries to get the Christian that he is tempting to undervalue the church is to get him to focus only on the outward appearance of what he sees on a Sunday. Get him to focus on the brick walls and the, the, the stained glass window or the glitches in the system but don't let him see the church for what it really is, as this great army with its banners flying in the wind. And so this morning, I want us to see who we are together as the church. Now, I don't want us to see it. Paul wants us to see it from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, that is the aim of what we're looking at. Who is the church? What is the church? Now, before we dive in, let's just give ourselves a bit of context. I know some of you haven't been here in the evening service. Um, the original recipients of this letter were uh, a small church, a church plant in this great big city, the city of Ephesus. And this church was in the shadow of two great cultural superpowers, the mighty Roman Empire and the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. 
So right in the middle of Ephesus, just like the the Law Hill in the middle of Dundee, there was a huge hill with a, a temple on top of it that was dedicated to the worship of Artemis. Everyone worshiped Artemis in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts 19, if you read about how this church started, you'll see that the first converts, the first members of this church were people that were involved in uh, worship of Artemis and all sorts of weird occult and spiritual practices. But now they are part of the church of Jesus. Now they are not going with the throngs. Now they are on the periphery of society, the small, weak church. Not only that, they're a church that is facing increasing conflict. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage these Christians. And he writes this letter to remind them of who they are. I said in the first week we looked in Ephesians, the the church of Jesus is kind of like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. You know, outwardly, it just looks pretty ordinary. But if you were to open the doors... If you were to see what's going on behind the scenes that has brought us together, there's this great cosmic power at work in the church. And in chapter 2, Paul has been trying to explain to us what that power is. What does that look like? And we said a couple of weeks ago that the, the power of the church is seen fundamentally in that it accomplishes God's plan, which is to bring everything in unity under Jesus. So in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, we we get the kind of uh, vertical access of what that looks like, how God unites us to Christ, how God saves us by grace and makes us his children. And here now in chapter 2, 11 to 22, we'll see that the power of the church is evident in how God unites us to each other. There is to be a radical unmatched unity that is evident in the church of Jesus. So here's what I want to do this morning. For those of you that are here maybe for the first time uh, or maybe you're interested or you're investigating Christianity, I want us to see from this text why the truth of what Jesus has done creates the most inclusive yet diverse society on earth. And I hope you'll become part of it. And for those of us here that are Christians, maybe we do feel like the Ephesians. Maybe we feel weak and peripheral. Maybe we're facing conflict. Well, let this text show you what this gathering really is. This is who we are. The church is to be the scale model of heaven, a place of peace. Here's how, Ephesians 2. Paul writes, verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in, his one, in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. 
he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Three simple points in this text. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians, firstly, who they once were. Secondly, how Jesus changed that. And thirdly, who they now are. Very simple. So, if we, if we are to see the, the magnitude and the beauty of the church, we need to see who we once were, how Jesus has changed that, and who we now are with each other, who we now are together. Okay, firstly then, who they once were, verse 11 and 12. Look down at verse 11 and, and, and verse 12. Notice how that both these verses begin by saying, remember. So, Ephesians, if, if you want to see the, the power that is at work within the church, you need to start engaging your brains. If you are feeling that, that being part of the church of Jesus is, is this kind of small and weak and unimpressive thing, then remember. It's Paul's way of saying to the church, make sure that, that this morning you are listening more carefully to God than you are to the voices of the culture around you. I know it can seem hard being part of the church, but remember what you were like before you were God's people. Remember that before Jesus, you were all outsiders. So here's what we need to understand to see what's going on here. For thousands and thousands of years before Jesus, God's people were one nation, one particular nation, the nation of Israel. They were his chosen people, his special people. God chose them so that that through that nation, they would bless all the nations of the world. And so Paul's saying, remember Ephesians, you Ephesian Gentiles in this church, remember that you were not part of this. You were not part of these great chosen people that were the Jews. You uncircumcised people going about your business, worshiping in the temple of Artemis, enjoying your life. But all the while, you were outsiders. And that was a devastating position to be in. Why? Three reasons. Firstly, verse 12, it meant you were separate from Christ. That term Christ is not Jesus' second name. It's a, it's a title. It's a title that comes from the Old Testament of the Bible, and it basically means God's chosen king. And so Paul's saying that, that Ephesians and us, before we were part of the people of God, had no promise of God's king. Not like the, the Jews had. We were separate from Jesus. We had no king no savior, no ruler to guide us. Secondly, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. So, not being part of of the people of Israel meant not having the promises that God gave Israel. We didn't have the promise of, of God's presence. We didn't have the promise of God's king. We didn't have the promise of God's salvation. We didn't have the promise of, of blessing and eternal peace. 
We had no right to any of the privileges that God had promised to his nation Israel. And therefore, that led thirdly and finally to the fact that we see there in verse 12, this is devastating. You see, not being part of God's people meant we had no hope and were without God. Now, just think on this. Before you were part of the church of Jesus, you were without hope and without God. And it's not, let's think of the Ephesians here. It's not the Ephesians didn't have hopes in life before they were Christians. It's not even that they didn't have gods. They, they, were, they were a very religious culture, devout in their worship to Artemis. Yeah, being a, an Ephesian was great. It was to be part of one of the greatest cultures in the world. The problem was, well, the problem was it wasn't real. They didn't have a true lasting hope. They didn't worship the real true God. It was all just a facade. They were just going along with the cultural tide. And whilst there might have been some good in Ephesus, at the end of the day, it was all just froth. And we know this because, well, where's, where's the great Ephesian culture today? Where's the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. Where's that today? And yet, let me ask you, where's the church of Jesus? See, don't be fooled by the popularity of, of current culture. Remember, Christian, that before you came to follow Jesus, before you became part of God's people, you were an outsider in a dire situation. You had no certainty, no clarity about life. You had no real lasting hope in the face of death itself. It was a black, unknowable, and unavoidable reality. And worst of all, worst of all, before you came to be part of the people of Jesus, you had no hope in the face of judgment. When you were not a Christian, God was not on your side. We were not His people alienated from all his promises, like inmates on on death row, isolated and alone from, from the goodness and the certainty of God's promises, with great big walls shutting us off from the outside. No God, no hope. See, the Jews had all these promises of salvation, and Paul's saying, you Gentiles had nothing. Now, let's be careful here. We mustn't think that somehow the Gentiles in Ephesus were like, you know, like little children with their faces pressed against the glass of the sweet shop, want, wanting to come inside and, and enjoy all these treats, but God's kind of shutting them off. It's not what Paul's saying. They were lost, but, but they had no desire to be God's people because they had no desire for God. We see that in, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And nor is Paul necessarily saying that the Jews were any better. Yes, in a way, it was better to be a Jew because you had all these promises. You had this rich history. But if you read Israel's history, it's marked by one key trait, rebellion. The Jews had taken God's promises and they had made them exclusive. They took that law that God gave them and rather than learning from it, rather than using it to be a light to the nations, they became insular 
and used it to show their superiority over others. That is what Jesus rebukes time and time again in the Gospels. That's why in verse 3, Paul says that himself as a Jew, he says, we Jews were no better than you Gentiles. We also carried out the desires of our flesh, and like you, were children deserving of wrath. We deserved God's judgment as much as you Gentiles did. And so what we have, just in these two verses, it's almost symptomatic of the world that we live in. We have this broken, fractured world, these divisions between peoples, and even the special rights of Israel had been abused to create a more divisive society, to create more hostility. But, verse 13, everything changes with the one word. Jesus changes all of that. Jesus does what no politician or no member of the UN has ever done or will ever be able to do. Jesus can take two groups that were hostile to each other and bring them together as one. How does he do that? Second point, how Jesus changes that. Verse 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. See what these verses are saying? Jesus has taken the Jews, the chosen people of God, who had wrongly excluded people through their use of the law on one hand, and he's taken the Gentiles, which is, a Gentile is just a term for everyone who's not a Jew, so that's us, uh, most of us, I imagine. He has taken these two groups and who has brought them together to make one new group. In fact, so profoundly different is this new group of people that Paul calls it the new humanity of God. So you see, it's not that the Jews had it right and the Gentiles were somehow grafted into them. It's not, they're both far from God. We see that in verse 16. They're both far. They both need to be brought together into something new. There is not a separate covenant for the Jews and for the church. There is now no Jew or Gentile. There is the church, or to use Paul's phrase, there is the new humanity of God. And that was God's plan from the beginning of time, that that everything should be united under Christ. The failure of Israel and the exclusion of the Gentiles was part of God's purpose so that we could see the necessity of Christ. You could see just the focus in these verses is, is Christ, isn't it? Christ himself, Christ himself, Christ himself. So how did Jesus do it? How does Jesus take take two hostile groups that have been alienated for centuries, how does he bring them together as one new humanity? Answer, the cross. The cross of Jesus unleashes an unparalleled power of peace that doesn't just reconcile two people, but it brings them together as one. 
Verse 16 states it clearly. It's the cross that does this. Verse 13, we have been brought near to Jesus by His blood, by His death on the cross. How did that work? Well, verse 14, He destroyed the wall of hostility that has existed between Jew and Gentile by abolishing in His flesh the law. That law that had been used to exclude the Gentiles has been set aside. You see, the law of God in the Old Testament It was a good thing that was designed to do two things, really. Firstly, it was there to show us a a standard that we were to strive for. Israel was to, to strive for the standard that the law set, showed God's holiness. But secondly, it was there to show us how sinful we were and the fact that we could never achieve that standard. So, the law shows us perfection, but it also shows us that we need condemnation. And Jesus sets that aside. He abolishes it by fulfilling it. So, the perfect standards of the law, He lives in His perfect life. He is what the law looks like in a person. And the condemnation that the law declares that we need, He takes on Himself as He dies on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is Him taking our punishment for all the laws of God that we have broken, whether conscious or subconsciously. Now, do you see how that breaks down barriers? It does so because it deals, firstly, with the most fundamental problem of mankind. This is why no politician can ever bring lasting peace between humanity, because they can't deal with humanity's biggest problem. And the reason our, our relationships are fractured with each other It's because our relationship with God is fractured. That needs to be fixed first. We we need the vertical access fixed first before we can sort out the horizontal. And Jesus fixes that relationship. Verse 16, both the Jew and the Gentile need to be reconciled to God. We both need to be reconciled. And the cross was where that reconciliation happened. Jesus takes all that is wrong with us. He suffers our punishment, and we get all that is right with Him. He is treated, to use the language of Ephesians 2, He is treated like an object of wrath so that we could be children of God, so that we could be at peace with our Maker. And that radically shapes and alters how we view each other. Think about it. We're all breakers of God's law. Therefore, we are all equally deserving of God's judgment. We are equally saved from that judgment on the same basis. It's, it's Jesus. It's Christ alone. It's not about us. We can't have superiority over anyone because what we've done nothing. Christ has done it all. Jew, Gentile, Ephesian, Dundonian, religious person, drug addict, churchgoer, prostitute, charity worker, mafia hitman. It doesn't matter. We are all equally deserving of judgment, equally sinners. But if you come to Jesus, equally saints, you are not better than any other Christian. You come to Jesus two minutes ago, or if you've come to Jesus 50 years ago, equally a saint. Whether verse 17 whether we were far off 
That is whether we were just living a lifestyle that was a million miles away from God or whether we were nearby, we'd grown up our whole life in the church. Peace has been preached to both. We are all equally invited to be reconciled back to our maker, just as forgiven, just as precious, just as loved as anyone else no matter what your background is, because the basis of our peace is not our devotion or our long serving or how good a person we've been. That counts for nothing in terms of peace with God. The basis of our peace is Christ. What does Paul call him? Christ who brings us peace? No, Christ our peace. We become equally adopted in, in, into the same family together. Therefore, verse 18, we have the same Savior through whom we both have unhindered access to the same Father by the same Spirit. We together are the new humanity of God. Do you realize that? Think about that question. What is the church? Would we have said the new humanity of God? God is recreating the human race as it ought to be through the church of Jesus. Now, that's staggering. Oh, we're not perfect. Don't mishear this. We are not perfect. We're all messed up, equally messed up sinners here in this building. We really are. We desperately need His forgiveness every day because we muck up all the time. But this is who we are meant to be with each other wonderfully united on the unchangeable truths of the gospel of peace, and yet still different. You know, we all have a tendency to create walls that, that shut others out and that make us feel slightly better than them. Everyone does it, whether it be through, um, whether it be through race or nationality, or whether it be through our political allegiances or the way that we think. And our culture's solution to that problem is to try and merge people into this kind of homogenized gray blob where everyone is forced to, to think the same. But not here, not in the global church of Jesus. Here we're to have a, a brilliantly vibrant, multicolored, multicultural society made up of every kind of social class, political belief, every kind of tribe and tongue and nation, people wonderfully different yet wonderfully united because the inseparable bond we have together is Jesus, our peace. And so, do you realize that if you're here this morning as a Christian in this church, you have more in common with the people sitting beside you than you do with your closest family member or friend who doesn't follow Jesus. That's what I love about the church. You know, I'm a bit odd. Um, <laughs> that's why if you're odd, you're very welcome here. I, I'm big into my heavy metal music. I still, I, I, when I was growing up, I was big into it. I still am. Um, and I found that, that when I was growing up, I kind of gravitated towards people who shared my interest in the, the great yet immensely underappreciated art form that is heavy metal. Um, and therefore, all my friends at school, were, we were all metalheads. They all had long hair. I used to have long hair, um, believe it or not. We, we all kind of looked the same. We, it was quite funny because we all thought we were rebelling against the trends of society. And yet, if you went to any heavy metal festival, you, everyone looks the same. 
here's the thing. For six years, I worked in a very posh, upper-middle-class church in Edinburgh. I worked with people who, uh, who wore chinos and ate hummus and listened to Radio 4. That is not, that is not the kind of people, naturally, I would, just, I would have gravitated to or would have hung out with at school. But let me tell you, I had more in common with those people than I did with my closest friends. They were my brothers and my sisters in Christ. The people um, in our study group or on the plant that we're doing in Charleston, they'll be radically different, I imagine, to um, my brothers and sisters in Edinburgh. But we're the same. The woman from Africa worshiping Jesus with her tambourine and the man from Lewis worshiping Jesus with his a cappella psalm singing have more in common than the closest family or friends. So let me ask you here, members, people who are Christians and part of this church, how do you view these people who sit next to you? Do you not really think about them? Have you found yourselves harboring a a real dislike because someone in the church family has really annoyed you? Have you maybe been subtly gossiping about others in the church? Have you said something about some of them that was perhaps unhelpful? Have you been encouraging people in St. Peter's? Are there people here who maybe you would just roll your eyes at? People that you look down on because they're not the same as you. They don't have the same gifts as you. They don't think like you. Or do we just treat people with indifference? Is the church just simply a weekly fix of teaching? If it is, that's a, that's a huge problem. That's, that's so at odds with the gospel. Jesus didn't just die to, to reconcile you to God. He died to reconcile us to each other. And the moment we undervalue this church and the people in this church, we undervalue Christ and the gospel of peace. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. We need to see who we are together in Christ. That's the third, much briefer, final point, who we now are. Look at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and and strangers. So if you're a member of this church, if you're part of the church of Jesus, you're not an outsider. You have a great big family here. You have no reason to, to be alone. You are part of this great global movement. You're part of this local church family. You are not a foreigner. You are not a stranger. Rather, now you are part of something incredible. And in verses 19 to 22, Paul describes the church. You can see it's like a construction metaphor. And what he's saying is that the church of Jesus is the new temple of God. Now, that is staggering. That's why Christians didn't have temples in the ancient world. Everyone in Ephesus thought they were weird. Where's your temple? We are the temple. And this temple is infinitely more glorious and more real than the the temple that stood in the middle of Ephesus, that seventh wonder of the ancient world. It's even more glorious than the temple that was in Jerusalem. That temple in Jerusalem was just a shadow of this, of what's happening here. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to be God's temple? Briefly, three things. Firstly, it means we are united together as one in God's household. We see that there in verse 19. So anyone who follows Jesus is my brother and sister. We have the same great heavenly father. We are adopted into the same great family. We, we affirm the, the differences in people, but embrace the unity that we have in Jesus. And therefore, we must treat each other like family, not with dislike, not with indifference, but with affection and, and service and unconditional kindness. Give time to our families, don't we? Well, this is, this is your real family. Secondly, it means that we are built together on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as our cornerstone. So the roots of our relationship with God and the roots of our relationships with one another is built upon the Bible. The testimony of the prophets, the Old Testament, the testimony of the apostles, the New Testament. You can't be part of the new humanity of God, of the church of Jesus, if the foundation is not the Word of God. If there's no Bible, there's no church. We obey God's Word. We listen to God's Word. We learn from God's Word. God's Word is in the driving seat of everything that we do as a church. That is our foundation. And when the testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the prophets is proclaimed as it is every Sunday here, then Christ is proclaimed. And any church that, that claims to be inclusive and yet denies the Bible as the Word of God or fails to teach the Bible is fraudulent. No foundation and no Christ. When the Bible is central, Christ is central. He is our cornerstone, our Savior, our God, our King, our Judge, our example. Everything this church has done and will do must be about Jesus and for Jesus because it's Jesus who keeps us together. Thirdly and finally, verse 22, it means that as the temple of God, we are the dwelling place of God. That's us. God's presence is not something we walk into, it's something we have. It's the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit. You always have God's presence because you always have God's Spirit. So, so we don't talk about coming into God's presence when we, when we come through these doors because this building is not God's house. This is just a really, really big room with lots of technical faults and underfloor heating. It's not a sanctuary. It's just bricks and mortar. This room is not special, but the people sitting next to you are special. Together we are built together as the temple. Together we are God's house. This, this organically growing construction where we all have unhindered access to God by His Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. We don't have a priest in this temple because Jesus is our high priest. We don't need a sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. So, my brothers and sisters, never undervalue the church. Never undervalue what's going on here, uh, even with glitches and stuff. Never undervalue what's happening with these people around about you. Not just on a Sunday, but every day of the week. Praise God that they're not like you. 
serve one another, care for one another, build each other up, give your life to these people because Jesus died to bring not only us to him, but to bring us together. Let's pray. Father, we want to just give thanks for the church of Jesus. Thank you, risen Lord Jesus, that you have, first of all, united us to you. Thank you that we were once dead in sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved, not by works, so that we cannot boast. Thank you, Jesus, that your death has brought peace between us and our Father. Thank you that it's achieved such a a radical peace. And help us, Father, to to see that, that the death of Jesus has achieved not just peace with you, but peace with one another. Father, help us to see what the church is. That we are the new humanity of God. Humanity being recreated as it ought to be. Lord, we know we are not there yet. We know that we muck up. We know that we treat people wrongly even people of the church, and we shouldn't do that. So we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your help, not to become united, but to see that we already are united. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to live as we ought to be, to live as who we really are in Christ Jesus. We ask that we would serve and care for one another. We would sacrifice our time, our money, whatever it is, to help each other in this church. We pray that this would be a community of peace and reconciliation, love and compassion, so much so that people will walk in and and know that we are disciples of Jesus because of how we treat each other. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to have a go at singing a song. Um, I think you should hopefully all have a sheet. Um, with the words, what we're going to be singing. So, okay. And during the song, we're also going to take up uh, an offering, which is uh, money that we use for gospel work, both here and further afield. So, um, the deacons will go round with the offering. We'll sing, "Come, People of the Risen King." So, uh, let's stand and sing, and then please remain standing for the closing prayer.